Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in. This is Brett Hawes, your host, and we're back with another episode today. Um, I don't have any housekeeping or announcements today, so we're just going to jump right into today's show. Um, I'm joined today by longtime friend and colleague Jill Hillhouse, and we're going to talk about everything to do with diabetes. Um, Jill has a long background in the field of nutrition. Uh, She was a teacher of mine uh, way back when, and she's the author of numerous books. Um, But today we're going to focus pretty squarely on uh, her book on diabetes, uh, so the, the paleo Um, diet solution for diabetes. Uh, I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes so you can check that out, a link to her book where you can buy it as well as some other resources. But um, just to give you a little bit of a sense about what we talk about on the show today, it's not, obviously we we talk a lot about diet. Okay, we talk about carbohydrates and the mechanisms that are driving um, diabetes and blood sugar issues. But I think that um, even if you're a practitioner uh, listening to this, I think you'll learn a couple things that you might not have known before. And I certainly did. So um, I'll just give you a little bit of a rundown of what we chat about. But of course, check the show notes out as well uh, to see more details on that. Uh, We essentially cover things like uh, type one diabetes as well. We briefly discussed that. We talk about non-food issues and how that drives diabetes, right? So non-diet related. Uh, We talk about something called double diabetes, which I had not heard of before. Uh, We tie in stress. Um, We talk about how to actually help improve your blood sugar, obviously, right? We don't want to leave you hanging. But um, one thing that I did take away from generally from our conversation was I love how Jill has a bit more of a simplistic approach to managing this, right? Because oftentimes when you get into the complexity of diabetes and you start looking at adrenal gland function and cortisol levels, you can get really, really granular with things like testing and supplements and whatnot. And Jill, you know, has worked with so many people with diabetes. She works in a very prestigious clinic uh, in downtown Toronto. And um, I love how she just sort of backs up a little a little bit, you know, and sort of says, well, hang on, before we go down the road of getting into every nook and cranny, let's rectify some of the basics, right? So let's limit our carbohydrate intake. Let's manage our stress. Let's do these things that are really foundational and then see what happens. And so, you know, I've dealt uh, a lot with blood sugar issues in my practice. And I can tell you that if you've never looked at it, And if you don't correct it, it's going to be very difficult to correct other areas of your health, right? So it really is a key foundational piece to general health and well-being. Um, Right, so I think that's it from my side. Um, There's a pretty good intro here where you'll get a better sense of um, Jill's background, etc., And I just want to give a quick shout out to all of you folks that are supporting the show, that are subscribers, that have left a review. Um, Thank you very much. And I recently found out um, just last week, I believe, that we're now ranking in the top 100 podcasts uh, for alternative health here in North America. So thank you um, again for tuning in. And as always, uh, please keep sharing this valuable information with your friends, your community, And, um, of course, subscribe to the show if you're not a subscriber. So I'm going to leave it at that, and uh, I bring you today Jill Hillhouse. Hey, Jill, welcome to the show, finally. Great. Thanks, Brett. So happy to be here. Yeah, and um, just to for our listeners out there, um, you know, Jill Jill was actually uh, one of my teachers um, go, going back some now, and that's actually where we first met. And I think we've always just maintained uh, a connection over the years. You know, um, teaching at the same school, and then just I think having common interests. So it's it's actually really good to um, have you on the show as my friend and my colleague. And uh, we're going to talk a lot about um, diabetes and paleo solutions and all that good stuff. But before we get into all of that, um, I do want to just sort of, um, you know, paint a little bit of a picture in terms of your background uh, for people. So, you know, you work at a very prestigious clinic. um, You've been teaching for a long time. You're an author of a few books. Can you perhaps just sort of elaborate on that just so that I don't botch the details? Oh, no, that's great. Um, yeah, so my journey to nutrition uh, really started heavy duty 
once I had children. And, you know, I'd, I'd studied kinesiology at university and had worked in the fitness in industry for a long time. But uh, the nutrition end of things really took hold once I started feeding my own children and realizing the impact uh, of whole foods and of good nutrition on their health and wanting them to have the best opportunity possible to have good health for us their whole lives. So that's really where it took off. And that's when I went back to school. That's when I went back to the Institute of Holistic Nutrition to study um, and then have been a practicing holistic nutritionist since then. And and I can't even remember when what the year was when we met, Brett. At, I'm at, not I, even sure. I think it was 2004, maybe yeah, Some, like somewhere that. around there. Yeah, somewhere yeah. around there. Yeah. So uh, it's been a great journey since then, working uh, with clinics, working uh, in my own private practice, writing books, as you said, and um, and now I, you know, I work on my in my own private practice and at P3 Health in Toronto, Canada. Uh, an integrative medical clinic. So it, it's been a great journey. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, just just one point before we move along, you you did write a book, if I'm not mistaken, on um, it, it's about early feeding for children. Is that right? Yes, I did. Uh, that was my first book. It's called The Best Baby Food, mm-hmm. and it's for it's about first foods for baby and and how we want to expose them to a lot of tastes and a lot of spices. Uh, for health and to help them develop a pot, their good palate so that they can be whole foods eaters for their whole lives as opposed to picky eaters. Right. And of course, I mean, and and that is, of course, uh, the the springboard or platform, which sort of segues into today's topic, right? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. uh, 100%. Yeah. (laughs) So so you're you're the author of um, the Paleo Diabetes Diet Solution. Correct. And um, I, as far as I can see out there, I mean, it's a great book. Um, it's being very well received. I believe you've, um, you know, you've received some accolades for that book as well. But um, in, a, in a nutshell, I mean, what prompted you to write a book on diabetes? I mean, is this something that you, you sort of specialize in or do you just happen to see it a lot in your clinic? Well, that's really how it came about because over the, the years of practice, I see patterns, and I know you do too with, with the, your clients, you see patterns over and over and over again of people coming in with various uh, things that, are, that continue to be present in people's health journeys. And one of those things is unbalanced blood sugar. And so once I really sort of noticed this pattern and started to work with people uh, specifically on, on balancing their blood sugar, and understanding how their blood sugar was impacting all their other health issues, it really became obvious to me that it's a foundational piece and it needs to be worked on very quickly and right at the beginning in conjunction with other things that are going on, of course, but everything relates to everything else in the, in the body, of course, and it's a closed system. So everything impacts everything else and blood sugar, as I said, is one of those foundational pieces that mm-hmm. until you get that managed and, and um, are aware of what's going on, it becomes very difficult to work on other things. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that, that's, that's why I've also sort of focused on that. Not maybe not as detailed as yourself, but I've, I also recognize those patterns and, you know, rough numbers from my side. Anyway, I, I would, I would say that in my practice over the years, I would say about 70% of my clients have some degree of, of blood sugar disturbance. Um, oh, or, yeah. or imbalance, yeah, um, and yeah. of course that spills over into so many other areas. I mean, hormone health, gut health, stress, um, absolutely, you know, weight, energy, fatigue. So all of these things um, really uh, tie into that. And I think the the unfortunate thing that I see out there is that a lot of people are not really looking at blood sugar and they're looking at all of the downstream effects, right? And they're trying to manage the downstream effects without really tracing it back to at least one of the roots anyway, which in this case um, is, is blood sugar, right? Um, well, no, absolutely. And that's what I mean it, uh, as it being foundational. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you mentioned hormones and of course insulin, which is our blood sugar hormone, um, is very powerful in the body and affects all of our other hormones. So if we're trying to work on thyroid or we're trying to work on, you know, PMS for women and we're trying to work on testosterone levels and all of that kind of stuff, we need to look at the other hormones we need to look at insulin and what it does in the body too so yes it really ties in with everything and that 70 percent that you threw out there absolutely you know really the the, the global uh 
prevalence of diabetes is frank diabetes, people that have actually been diagnosed, is getting pretty close to 10% around the world. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. But you go, okay, 10%. Well, you know, I'm, I'm part of the other 90%. But then if we look at, um, you know, even Diabetes Canada says that about one in three of us have diabetes or prediabetes. And most people don't even know they have prediabetes. Hmm. Um, and, but the whole, it's not just, a, blood sugar is not just about whether or not you have diabetes or whether or not you have prediabetes. It's about the whole spectrum of blood sugar dysfunction that starts just outside of normal blood sugar, <laughs> right? Right, right? It starts with insulin resistance and then goes all the way over to diagnosed type 2 diabetes. So, um, and not to, not to mention the autoimmune type 1 diabetes or gestational diabetes that tie in here. Most of what everybody's dealing with is some kind of insulin resistance that then potentially leads right through to diabetes. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important for people to understand as well is, is that, you know, you, you bring up a gradient and I think that's a very good way or a spectrum even of, of looking at it because I think a lot of people are still under the impression that, you know, you just go, you're hypoglycemic one day and then you're diabetic the next day. And, and I always educate people and say, well, look, you know, you start off just going slightly hypoglycemic, then going a little bit more hypoglycemic, then you get, you know, then you're really reactive. And then you start moving the other way where your blood sugar, you know, as your cells become resistant to insulin, the, your blood sugar slowly starts creeping up. And that's where you hit the prediabetes and then full blown um, di diabetic stage, right? Right, uh, absolutely. And, and it, as you said, it doesn't come out of the blue, for the most mm -hmm. part. Um, and part of why we don't discover it until it's diabetes is because when we look at the medical testing that's done for it, we're looking at, at a, a marker that doesn't change until the very end. So huh. the, the marker that most people uh, look at is your fasting blood sugar, right? Or your fasting blood glucose. And that's going to be the absolute last number that moves. If we were looking at people's fasting insulin, we would have a five to 10 year jump on blood sugar dysfunction. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And th that's really good for people to know, um, you know, fasting insulin. What are your thoughts? Um, I, you know, I know we're sort of moving along here, but since we're talking about it may as well, what are your thoughts on using leptin as, as a marker? Because from my understanding, leptin resistance actually precedes insulin resistance um, by, by a good number of years. And I know that there are some tests out there, but it's not a very common thing for people to be looking at. No, it's not. And in fact, I don't have much experience looking at leptin markers. So mm. um, you may know more about that than I do. It's, it's, I think in here in Canada, it might be difficult for people to have yeah. that tested. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it, it is. And I mean, as I say, like, that's a very new sort of thing that's starting to happen. But, you know, you bring up fasting insulin, and I think that that's a very, very powerful um, marker. Uh, so, so perhaps elaborate on that uh, a little bit for us, you know, for, for people who are maybe not um, as well versed in diabetes, maybe mm -hmm. let's just start from the beginning. Um, you know, what are some of the signs and symptoms that people might want to look out for before they're actually um, diagnosed as pre-diabetic or diabetic? Right. So the, the challenge here is that the signs and symptoms are things that go along with all sorts of other conditions, uh, right? So uh, one of the, the best signs um, for people to look at is how do you feel after a meal of, let's say, pasta or, you know, a breakfast of toast or something like that? Are you finding yourself dragging around? Are you, you know, after dinner, do you sit on the couch and within half an hour you're falling asleep? Hmm. Uh, so fatigue is is one of the the biggest signs, but we're fatigued generally in our society. Yeah, yeah, you know, most yeah. of us aren't getting enough sleep or enough movement, or you know, our air isn't great or something like that. So that's a difficult one to to pinpoint. Um, a lot of swelling of people's ankles and hands and that kind of stuff can be can be a sign of poor um, carbohydrate tolerance. Um, Poor eyesight, um, that usually comes a little bit further along, tingling in the feet and the hands, maybe early signs of neuropathy. But, you know, really fatigue and just not feeling great or getting headaches between meals, feeling dizzy if you haven't eaten for two, three hours, that kind of stuff. You yeah, know, we, yeah. Those are some of the big ones. But a lot of times people don't actually have any symptoms. 
Right. And, and therein lies the problem, right? Because yeah, it sort exactly. of like cre- creeps up on you out of the blue, even though it's happening in the background um, on, on a subconscious level. So um, would you say that sleep, sleep issues w- would, would tie into that as well? Um, sleep. Yes. Gen- yes, absolutely. People might wake up in the middle of the night hungry, in fact. Yeah. Um, or wake up and think, oh, I need to have something to eat, to eat because I just don't feel great. Um it, but again, it's not necessarily one of the first signs that you would see if somebody's having blood sugar dysfunction. Yeah. Um, as you said, it's it's it, and this is why it is people with pre even with farther along the spectrum at pre diabetes aren't necessarily diagnosed with anything because they don't think anything's wrong. It's just their normal fatigue. It's just their normal life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they have all these little signs and symptoms, and they're not really paying attention to them because they may think, well, this is just part of getting older too. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, makes it very a very sticky um, topic or sticky situation to to try and you know properly evaluate. So let's, I mean, let, since we're talking evaluation and diagnostics, um, you know, what you, you mentioned fasting insulin before. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, what are what are physicians really looking at when it comes to evaluating blood sugar and diabetes? So fasting glucose. Uh, fasting insulin, hopefully, um, anything you know, HbA1c is 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 quite a common marker. Do you know much about that, or do you look at that? Yeah, I look at that too. So, but maybe maybe let me just back up a little bit, and for sure. some of your listeners, and just explain why fasting glucose is not necessarily the best marker to look at. Great, yeah, um, yeah. So if we look at how blood sugar works in the body when we eat our food it's all macronutrients it's fats and proteins and carbohydrates and when we digest those things everything is broken down into its component parts so you know fats are broken down into fatty acids and glycerol and proteins are broken down into amino acids and carbohydrates are all broken down into individual glucose molecules and then those glucose molecules go into our blood the body doesn't. Uh, body needs that glucose, so it secretes insulin from the pancreas. The insulin's job then is to move the sugar, the glucose, out of the blood and into the cells, where it can then get used for energy. So that's the insulin's job. It's to move the sugar out of the blood into the cells. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we continually eat a lot of carbohydrates, either in volume at a particular meal or multiple times throughout the day, then the pancreas is, its job is, is pretty big. It needs to secrete a lot of insulin to move that blood sugar out of, the, out of the blood and into the cells where it can get used for energy. Over time, the cells already have enough energy in them and the, they start to sort of essentially close their doors and they don't answer the knocking of insulin anymore. So um, they become a little bit resistant to that action of insulin. And what happens is the pancreas says, well, I guess the cells aren't hearing my message, so I need to pump out more insulin to get them to open the doors and let the sugar in. Mm. And so the insulin gets high, but the blood sugar itself is still within normal range because of all this insulin really pushing the sugar into the cells. So if we look at the blood marker, our fasting blood sugar is still normal. Right. But our fasting insulin would be high Hmm. or would be starting to creep up. So it is a marker that precedes the fasting blood sugar elevation. And as I said, this can go on for years. And in fact, in some people, it can go on for a decade or more before their blood sugar starts to show signs of trouble. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is a huge jump that we can get on this and say, okay, your fasting insulin is high or getting higher, which means your pancreas is producing a lot more insulin. Why is that? Well, it's because it has to deal with all those carbohydrates that you're eating. So yeah. let's address that, try and get back to that root cause. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. I mean, a, a really you know, great, concise um, explanation there, and it makes total sense. Uh, now, as far as I understand as well, um, you know, early stage diabetes even, uh, fasting insulin is still high, correct? That's because, correct, because yes. Because your pancreas is still trying to compensate for, for the cellular dysfunction. Um, yeah, exactly. And type 2 diabetes, um, 
Type 1 diabetes, of course, is an autoimmune situation where the beta cells in the pancreas, which are the cells that secrete the insulin, have been attacked and have been destroyed. So the person is no longer able to produce insulin at all. Well, right. or, or mostly. Right. There are some type 1s, of course, that are still producing a tiny bit of insulin, um, which is very helpful. But um, for, for all intents and purposes, for type 2, the pancreas as you said, is producing a ton of insulin. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's not, um, and until very late stage, end stage type 2 diabetes, that the pancreas may actually stop producing insulin. Yeah. So, uh, but it I wanna... may not. It may be producing insulin the whole time. Right, right, right. And so again, it comes back to that gradient. Um, That's right. You know, yeah. one thing I just want to circle back to is type one diabetes. You know, for mm -hmm. our listeners, I know we're not going to talk a lot about that today, but uh, something that I've seen a lot in practice anyway with type one is, you know, if you're not making insulin, obviously you have to rely on insulin shots, um, you know, mm -hmm. insulin medication to regulate your blood sugar properly, right? But the, right. The, the one of the biggest mistakes that I've seen with that situation is basically type one diabetics will go, okay, great. So if I eat more carbs, I just you know, secrete, I just shoot up more insulin, right? I just inject more insulin and off we go. So I can basically do whatever I want. And I think that the, the downside of that is you are still stressing out your cellular mechanism, but more importantly, your insulin levels stay high in the body, right? Because, because you're injecting more insulin and the, you know, perhaps we'll get into this, but insulin has a number of other functions that fall outside of just blood sugar regulation. You know, we, we talk about things like fat storage, weight gain, um, et, et cetera, et cetera, you know, maybe even affecting appetite as well. Um, so for those of you, you know, who are listening out there, if you know someone who is type one, who is on insulin injections, just, just be a little bit cautious of the amount of carbohydrates that you're consuming and try and keep them as low as possible. Okay. Well, exactly. And just let me address that for just a sec, Brett, because, um, that, unfortunately, in my experience, has been one of the major messages for people with type 1 diabetes is to just dose your insulin depending on your carb count. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we do know is that just as if your pancreas was producing a ton of insulin in type 2 diabetes, in type 1 diabetes, if you are injecting a lot of insulin, it's the same thing. So your cells can still become insulin resistant, right? even in type 1 diabetes. And what can happen with type 1 is that you end up with type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Oh, wow. Okay. You end up with double diabetes so that you're, because your cells are insulin resistant to the insulin that you're injecting. Huh. I, I, didn't, I didn't know that, actually. It makes total sense. Um, yeah. So, wow. And that's a, that's a really tough situation. So it mm -hmm. does matter that type 1 diabetics pay attention to their carb intake uh, so that they don't have to use excess insulin to protect them long-term down the road because they're on insulin for the rest of their lives. Right. So we want, they want to be protected so that they can still you know, live a long and healthy life as opposed to becoming insulin resistant to that insulin that they have to inject. Right. So, so, you know, we've, we've spoken a lot about food and we talk about carbohydrates and, you know, you, a, a really good, concise explanation there. But it's my understanding that there's also non-food issues that can affect blood sugar. Perhaps you can speak to that. Absolutely. So, so food, is the, food is the most profound thing that has an effect on our blood sugar. Absolutely, for sure. For sure. So we want to pay attention to that first. It's sort of the lowest hanging fruit, right? <laughs> we right, can right, right. <laughs> change it, um, then everything changes. And we can change it as fast as your next meal. The next, the next food that goes in your mouth um, can have an impact on your state of insulin resistance. So, but beyond that, beyond food, there are a whole bunch of other things that... Um, affect us too. And one of those things you talked a little bit about, you mentioned before was sleep. And what we know about sleep is that if we don't get enough of it, we know it's a problem for all sorts of things in the body. But if we don't get enough of it, it affects our insulin resistance and our state of insulin resistance. It's really interesting. One of the first um, sleep studies that was done to look at um, glucose uh, in the body was probably about 20, 25 years ago. And they looked at a group of healthy young men, so no signs of existing blood sugar issues at all. And they were initially limited to four hours of sleep per night 
for six consecutive nights. And what they found at the end of that study was that they had um, their insulin secretion was 30% less than it had been beforehand. And so they were at the levels of, of a glucose control that we would consider pre-diabetic. And that hmm. was just after one week of reduced sleep. Interesting. Wow. I wonder what the mechanisms are behind that. You know, it's, it seems uh, interesting. I'm sure cortisol or something, you know, must Cortisol have... would be as part of it for sure. Um, and uh, just the, the cell's ability to uptake and disperse that glucose. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm, for sure. And then when they do, I mean, four hours of sleep is pretty, is pretty light. Not, you know, hopefully uh, people are getting more than four hours of sleep, <laughs> but a lot of people get by with five to six hours of sleep. And the studies that have come out since then, because this has been a really interesting area of, of study, is showing that even at six hours of sleep, it's not enough. It does impact the cells. And in fact, you become more insulin resistant faster when you don't get enough sleep. Right. And of course, if you double down with a, you know, high carbohydrates, high sugar, refined carb diet, I mean, it's, it's just a, it's a double blow, essentially. Well, um, and that's one of the interesting things, too, is that in these sleep studies is that what they found with, um, there was one other cool study, let me tell you about, that they um, deprived people of sleep, again, to the five, six hours um, per night for about a week. And they let them, they were also feeding these people at the same time in this study so that they could monitor exactly what they were eating and how many calories. And what they found was that with the deprived sleep, people not only ate more calories, but they also gravitated towards the junk food. Hmm. So they were, they were primed by lack of sleep to go for the refined sugar and refined grains, which meant that they were eating foods that affected their blood sugar even more. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And, really you know, um, I, I recently did a podcast with, uh, with Dr. Jack Cruz, and we spoke fairly extensively about diabetes and um, electromagnetic frequencies, yeah. and, you know, blue light and all that sort of stuff. So I think, you know, when I, when I hear what you're saying as well, you know, sleep, we've got diet, we've got the blue light and the EMFs. Um, it's no wonder that diabetes rates are skyrocketing, you know, because no, no, really no wonder storm, at all. You know, perfect storm situation here um, that we're looking at. Um, well, what are people doing when they're not sleeping? They're right. on, on their phone. They're on their screen of some yeah, sort. Inside, right? Yeah, inside. Um, yeah, so there goes the blue light too. And I don't know if you've read the book by uh, Matthew Walker called Why We Sleep. No, I haven't. I haven't. Oh, it's a great book. Everybody should get their hands on that book. It's a, it's a tremendous book. And what he looked at with some of his sleep studies, he did, he did functional magnetic, functional MRIs mm -hmm. in the brain to see what was happening, happening when people um, had poor sleep. And he found that the frontal lobe of sleep-deprived people um, is affected and, and there's an increased activity also in the amygdala. So what that means really is that there's impaired brain activity in the areas that govern controlled decisions and thoughtful judgments. Huh. Wow. <laughs> right. Which, wow. Means, which makes us go for the junk food and the refined carbs, uh, as opposed to maybe some broccoli that might be better for us to have. Well, and perhaps this explains why people have such a hard time cutting out the, the sugar and reducing absolutely. the carbohydrate um, yeah. count, you know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so are there any other non-food issues that people should be concerned about? Yes. I mean, you touched on EMFs. You know more about that than I do, for sure. But um, uh, toxins are another big thing that, um, that uh, affect our blood sugar. And they've been coined, a number of these toxins like phthalates and parabens have been coined obesogens right. um, in their contribution to obesity, but also diabetogens in their contribution to blood sugar dysfunction. So um, these are things that we find mostly in our personal care products and in our household cleaning products. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they are something that absolutely needs to be addressed as well. If you think about how many personal care products you use once you get up in the morning before you leave the house, you've brushed your teeth, maybe you've used mouthwash potentially, body wash, shampoo, conditioner, moisturizer, all of these things. And if you're not paying attention to what's in those, you might be getting a lot of 
as I said, phthalates, which are preservatives and fragrances, and parabens, which are also preservatives. And you're slathering that on your skin, which is absorbing it directly into your system. And it then has an effect on your blood sugar as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's something, I mean, I've spoken about both of those topics mm-hmm. uh, fairly extensively on the show and, and in the lectures that I've done over the years. And, uh, you know, I just feel like even now still, like I feel that there's a bit of greenwashing going on, you know, oh, yeah. all of a sudden everything is natural and everything has ylang ylang in it and squeaky yeah. clean. And, you know, I think um, for those of you listening out there again, like, you know, um, go and look at the back of the label, you know, try yeah. it. It's it's just something that I still find that people kind of bypass a little bit. You know, they they look at the label and go, oh well, it's got a leaf on it and it says natural, so good enough. You know, and um and and if you're not paying attention to that stuff, I mean, really, uh, it's something that will just creep up on you over the years. You know, it's not something that's going to happen or make you feel sick now. Um, no, precisely. Yeah. It's long-term bioaccumulation, and then of course the combination of all of those chemicals as well is is going to contribute to that. Um, well, absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. Any anything else from a non-food perspective before we move on? Stress is another one. You know, we touched on that a little bit with the cortisol, with the no sleep, but but stress. You know, we are finding people are more stressed. more and more and more by society by our environment but uh, you did mention that cortisol and so that cortisol is another hormone that is when we feel stress or when we're we're exposed to a threat um, the body this is our fight and flight which is which is something that we need and is very helpful in a lot of situations but when we're exposed to chronic stress we're always in fight and flight and we're never in the other side, the parasympathetic rest and digest end of our nervous system. And when we're secreting cortisol all the time, its job, one of them, is to move sugar into the blood so that we can access it for energy when we have to fight or flee. Right. So we're constantly, essentially when we're in a stressed situation, our body becomes temporarily insulin resistant in order to provide energy for our muscles and our brain to do what it needs to do. Huh, wow. And so, I mean, I've known that cortisol, essentially what we're saying here in a nutshell, is cortisol stimulates glucose production, right? Correct. Um, do, do you feel that it's useful for people to, if, if you suspect, you know, or let's, for example, say you go and see your doctor and they run some blood work and, you know, oh, it shows that you are perhaps pre-diabetic or even diabetic. Do you think it's, it's important or valuable for people to also assess their adrenal gland function and their stress hormones? Uh, I, I think it very definitely can be. But I also try and sort of say, what is the easiest thing for this person to shift? Mm-hmm. And I'm sometimes I worry if I go right to adrenals with people that they get stressed out about the fact that they don't know how to calm the, calm down their adrenals. They're, they're, they're stressed out because their adrenal yeah. glands are stressed out. So, exactly. So, <laughs> so I'd rather start with the food first, and of course, yeah. But, but I, but you know, I you want to get lifestyle in there too. So um, breathing is one of the best ways to start the process of calming down the adrenals. Mm. And I always give people breathing exercises as simple as four, seven, eight breathing uh, that Dr. Wheel talks so much about too. And, um, but the, the key with breathing is to actually practice it multiple times a day. <laughs> so again, when I talk about meditation with people, people get stressed out because they don't know how to meditate. And so I don't want to go there. So let's just do some breathing. And that's yeah. usually where I'd start with people. Yeah. yeah, And I like that approach as well. I mean, you know, people come in and they've just got a laundry list of stuff going on and multiple medications. And I always say to people, you know, it, it's pointless. Um, if your health is low and your stress is high, we, we don't want to increase your stress while we're trying to increase your health, right? Nice. And um, I just find that so, you know, with just there's so much information out there that, you know, you're expected to do all of the stuff in order to be healthy. And what I'm getting from you here is that there's actually a very simplistic approach to at least get started, right? And I think it's important yeah. for people out there to always um, acknowledge that and remember that. I think so too. And, and you know, we have, as holistic nutritionists and functional nutrition practitioners, you know, we there are a lot of tests out there that we can yeah. access and see a lot of stuff. And they're incredibly valuable at the right time. Mm-hmm. I don't like to jump in necessarily to doing a ton of testing right at the beginning unless yeah, I see yeah. it's warranted. 
let's start with some real shifting and real changing that, that, that a client can take on immediately and that's going to move them towards better health. Right. And, you know, and that I just, I, I'll, I'll, I know it's a bit of a sidebar, but I think it is worth mentioning. You know, I spoke with, uh, with Josh uh, yeah. about this and, you know, functional medicine testing, of course, is such a hot button topic. You know, everyone wants test, test, test. And you've got practitioners going on these huge fishing expeditions just to see what's there. Yeah. And I just can't get behind that. You know, I mean, it, you know, running a test that's clinically relevant or that's that's at least necessary that's going to give you good actionable data is is key you know i mean that's great and i'm i'm i subscribe to that you know i'm not trigger happy on testing i'm mm-hmm. not all about like let's spend 5 grand and do 20 tests just to just to see um because yeah as you say you know i mean sometimes too much data can be a bad thing um, yeah. in terms of, of confusion, overwhelm, et cetera, et cetera. So that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, that's really for, for, um, you folks listening out there, you know, if you're, you obviously are in the functional medicine space and perhaps working with someone. Um, so yeah, that's just my two cents on, on lab testing for a hot minute. So let's move us forward. And, um, you know, obviously, uh, you, you are talking about the paleo solution to diabetes. So, um, in a nutshell, I mean, what's the starting point? What's the premise? And then maybe we can get a little more granular from there. Sure. The um, Getting back to uh, our macronutrients that I talked about, you know, our carbs, our fats, our proteins, and how they're digested and then utilized by the body, um, carbohydrates have the biggest impact or the most immediate impact on our blood sugar. So from the perspective of how do we shift blood sugar quickly, really evaluating the total number of carbohydrates and where they're coming from um, is important. So if we look at a North American diet or a Western diet, I guess it really doesn't matter if it's North American or global, the -hmm. Western diet, um, a lot of calories come from sugar and processed grains. And in fact, that, that the amount of calories over the last hundred years has increased coming from those areas. So those are the two biggest areas that you want to look at. And if we look at the paleo approach, so the paleolithic era was, you know, millions of years ago. And really what it is, is the idea that, um, I mean, many people have called it the caveman diet or the ancestral diet or that sort of thing. The idea is if we eliminate our modern foods, so our processed foods, and we eat more like our ancestors, uh, we'll have better health. And and it doesn't mean that we have to go out and forage necessarily, although that can be a good thing. <laughs> but Loin plots and spears. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to hunt and gather our own food. But, you know, really what it means is that we're programmed to eat whole um, unprocessed foods and we're not genetically programmed to eat our uh, all of the refined processed foods that we do eat. So... If you look at strict paleo, it's going to eliminate um, dairy. It's going to eliminate all grain. Uh, It even eliminates legumes. And um, what am I missing there? Um, I think that's most of it, right? Some nuts? Yeah. So I'm a little bit more of a modified paleo approach. Um, Really, you want to eliminate all sugars and added sugars uh, and processed grains. Um, and even grains. I mean, my book doesn't have any grains, even if they are intact grains. Okay. Uh, sometimes okay. with my clients, I will work and, and allow people to, or not allow, that's a, a <laughs> terrible word, uh, <laughs> uh, indicate that they can have some um, intact grains. That means grains that have not been ground down into flour mm. um, of any sort. And um, so the idea is really that we're programmed to eat these whole unprocessed foods as opposed to refined processed foods. Yeah. And I think, um, so a couple of points on that, you know, uh, I I like that it's a bit more of a moderate approach. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, for for myself, I don't specialize in diabetes. I I just deal with a bunch of, you know, with a a few different areas within the health and wellness um, space. So, you know, for me, I'm recommending different diets all the time for people, but Mm -hmm. I've, I've seen anyway, and perhaps you can speak to this, that, you know, if you try and shift people onto a really hardcore paleo diet where you are eliminating all the grains, all the beans, um, all the dairy, like, do you, do you find that it can be quite restrictive for people and there's a lot of resistance? Um, 
you know, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Especially if they think it's forever. Yeah. So, yeah. so often an approach um, that I use is a, a, a quick short term elimination of a lot of things, kind mm. of like an elimination diet, right? You, so right. for a couple of weeks, you would eliminate dairy, you would eliminate grain, specifically, well, if you're eliminating grain, of course, you're eliminating gluten. Um, I generally leave the legumes in uh, unless there's a digestive issue where we know that we want to have uh, something going on there. So, um, but um, uh, it, it, it is person specific, it is client specific, um, but to go and massively eliminate everything, you might have compliance or adherence for yeah. a week or two. Yeah. But six weeks later, is there adherence? And then therefore, how is it benefiting them? Right, 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 right. right. So, so do you feel, I mean, you know, you, you mentioned intact grains, um, mm -hmm. you know, because this is obviously, especially in the paleo world, is like such a hot button topic. Yes. I mean, it's like get rid of all grains. And then, yeah. you know, I do want to talk to you about low carb and no carb. So, you know, how, sure. how do we, if we push that, the needle a little further and start getting into the keto, you know, carnivore realm, yeah. but we'll get there in a second. So... Um, do you feel, you know, is, is the primary goal to what I'm hearing anyway is to um, is really to cut back on carbohydrates, right? So, so lower your overall carb intake. And to do that, we're really eliminating most of the grains, at least the gluten grains. And that, that's the sort of moderate approach. Is that correct? It is. And in fact, I, I usually take it one step further and have people really be aware of what grains are they eating because we so we do it so unconsciously in North America specifically at breakfast we're almost paralyzed by grain the whole idea of eating something other than toast or a muffin or a bagel or a breakfast sandwich or something like that for breakfast to start the day people say well, well then what am I going to eat right so it's a, it's a building an awareness in people that the food need the body needs good food regardless of the time of day, um, and it doesn't necessarily need uh, waffles in the morning and then broccoli and protein at night. It might need some protein and carbohydrates from vegetables all day long. So um, building that awareness around uh, where are you getting your grains and are you even aware of how much grain that you're getting. Right, right. And, you know, I mean, just a bit of a sidebar, but personal here, um, you know, my, my son is three and a half years old and <laughs> kids, holy smokes, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's just such a challenge because, you know, my daughter eats, uh, eats not very differently. Obviously, we're a family, but I just find with her, she's not like really locked onto carbs as much. Like she can, mm -hmm. you know, she can get behind eggs and avocado for breakfast, right? She's cool with that. Um, yeah, she'll have some toast sometimes, but she can also do a smoothie. You know, she, she's older. She's, she's 12 years old. Mm -hmm. But with, with my little guy, he's just like, you, you try and give that guy anything other than gluten-free toast for breakfast. And it's just like World War III, you know? So, um, <laughs> I so, have a lot so, of so, know, you got any tips like for me? Too. I'm looking for some help here. Can you help me out? <laughs> Well, I know a lot of adults that are like that too. Uh, so, um, but you're you're right. For kids, um, especially young kids, it can be it can be difficult. Um, and I don't know. There are probably a gazillion reasons for that. Yeah. Uh, metabolically as well as emotionally and psychologically. Mm -hmm. But um, there are, as I said, there are a lot of adults that are stuck on their cereal for breakfast or cereal before bed or toast for breakfast. So. Uh, just adding some protein in, in conjunction with that is usually the way I start. Yeah. Is it toast with, you know, a nut butter and then also hemp seeds uh, to boost up the fats and the proteins a little bit yeah. so that there's not such a glycemic response, not such a blood sugar response to just the, the flour from the bread. Um, but as I said, breakfast is a tough one. Yeah. And that, that, that's typically, you know, that's the way that I've worked it is to just like, you know, add butter, add nut yeah. butter, like get the fats up so that at least you slow down the glycemic response. Um, exactly. and, and, you know, I mean, look, let's face it as well. Like kids are the healthiest, you know, demographic on the planet. Um, he's not having any issues with blood sugar. There's no signs or symptoms. You know, he seems fine. But my concern again, and I'm sure a lot of parents listening to this, you know, my concern is what does the road ahead look like? You know, if you, if you do that for the next 15 years, um, 
is that going to be a problem? You know, and, and I, I that's think right. that's the concern as a parent, you know, it's not necessarily what's happening now, but what's happening in the future. Um, because we're forming habits and, right. and these are the habits that we end up with as adults mm-hmm. <laughs> and it becomes an ingrained situation uh, okay. and, and a lot more difficult to shift. So keeping, keeping some adequate protein in at each meal yeah. um, uh, is one of the first places that I start. And then also looking at how often people are eating. So this is, you know, we've come out of about a decade, I think, of recommending that people have a meal and then a snack and then a meal and then a snack. Oh, yeah. Yeah, please talk about this because I, (laughs) oh my gosh. (laughs) So, you know, are there people for which this is necessary? Absolutely. Um, But from a blood sugar perspective, the more often that we eat, the more often we're breaking down carbohydrates into sugar, into glucose in the blood, and the more often the pancreas has to produce insulin to move that sugar into the cells. Right. And it doesn't get a rest. And our, so if we are to eat three meals a day that, and no snacking in between, then we get a little bit of a rest. The pancreas gets a little bit of a rest between mm-hmm. each meal. Mm-hmm. We can sometimes even take that down to two meals a day if we limit our feeding window and we have, you know, some time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting. Um, that can help us control our blood sugar even more in certain situations. So, yeah, I think we are probably uh, have been eating too often yeah. from a blood sugar perspective. And if we can bring that back to a, a much smaller eating window per day and ideally 12 hours of fasting each night at least um that can go a long way to regulating our blood sugar Mm -hmm. well and i'll just elaborate on that a little bit more and add um, you know i think when when you look at our biology you know blood sugar is designed um or sorry our biology is designed for blood sugar and insulin to ebb and flow mm-hmm. you know if you if you think that we were at one point all hunter gatherers you know it's not like you just uh, saw a cow in the field and was like hey everyone everyone ready you know ready for the barbecue we're just going to walk <laughs> over there and get some food um even to this day the modern hunter gatherers i mean sometimes they would go fasting for two or three days while they're trying to track something down and you know if the weather's bad or if the you know whatever whatever the berries didn't happen this year um you're you know you're left fasting for the majority of the day yeah. and and i think that you know the standard diabetic recommendations uh for, from a medical perspective which is simply to you know eat low glycemic index eat five to six small meals a day um, you know, I've been saying this for a few years now. I just think it's very outdated in terms of what the science is showing us these days. Um, I would completely agree. And um, the challenge is that when somebody is is far down the spectrum of blood sugar dysfunction, when they don't eat between meals, they can feel their blood sugar can drop to right. uh, quite low levels because they're producing so much insulin. Huh. They're pulling all the sugar out of their blood. And so they go hypoglycemic. They go into low blood sugar. And um, uh, they can feel dizzy. They can feel nauseous. They can feel like they're going to pass out. All of those things. And so the recommendation becomes, well, then eat something. And then you'll feel yeah. it. Yeah. And your blood sugar will come back up. Mm-hmm. So okay, fine, but, it, but it, what it does is it just keeps exacerbating the situation. So yeah. if at the three meals, so sometimes some of my clients are going to continue to snack because they feel so terrible um, because their blood sugar is so out of whack. So we've got to back up a little bit and work a little bit slower and say, okay, at each meal, we're going to lower the carbohydrates and we're going to increase the protein a little bit and the fats. And then when you do need to snack, we're going to snack on something that is not high carbohydrate. We're going to snack on something like nuts and seeds, which have, you know, one part carbohydrate, one part protein and two parts fat, essentially. And that is going to take 15 minutes or so to make you feel better. But in the long run, it's going to keep the blood sugar a little bit more stable. So we start slowly and take those steps towards two or three meals a day. Mm-hmm. So something, you know, and that, and that makes total sense. I mean, I love what I'm hearing from you because I, I feel that a lot of the recommendations, you know, you read books and you read blogs and whatever, a lot of the recommendations are really trying to get people from zero to a hundred in the fastest possible time. And, you know, that, that, that transition period of going from a zero, to, from zero to a hundred, it's just the faster you try and do it, the bumpier the road, you, you know, and I feel for a lot of people, they, 
they try intermittent fasting right out the gate. You know, they try yeah. go zero carb or full paleo right out the gate and they feel so terrible. And then they beat themselves up because it's like, oh man, I can't do this. I'm a failure. And they never actually move the needle anywhere and, 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 you know, progress in their, in their health. Right. Yeah. Um, so I love the approach that you take. You know, I feel that it's not as um, perhaps dogmatic or purist, which which is actually a good thing. When you, <laughs> it's not, yeah, no, I dog, dogma and nutritional dogma is is a whole other topic. Yeah, <laughs> let's we not could, get into that today because we, we could be here for a while. <laughs> um, but, but to your point, the idea is that the blood sugar dysfunction didn't happen overnight either. Right. So you know, the, we do want. Uh, if you think about it that way, it's it's been happening for the last decade or more in the people that you see, so or in yourself, and you, so you think, okay, I don't need to fix it in six weeks. As long as I start taking the steps, it is starting to be fixed. And as I said before, you can impact your blood sugar with your next meal. So we can it, it has an immediate impact, and mm-hmm. and food has an immediate impact on blood sugar. So if you blow it one meal, well, then you just look at it the next meal. But the idea of, well, I have to be perfect within, you know, a month or six weeks or 12 weeks or whatever it is. No, I don't, I don't agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you feel, um, you know, something we mentioned earlier is intermittent fasting, right? And I know it's like such a hot button topic these days as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, well, here, here's the thing, right? I mean, so there's obviously a lot of um, debate, confusion, conflicting information, whatever you want to call it, whereby, you know, if we've already established that most people with blood sugar issues are going to have some degree of adrenal gland dysfunction and cortisol, right? Like cortisol imbalance. I think that's fairly well established. So the question then becomes, well, if I do intermittent fasting, right? Yes, I I have this 12-hour window um, or perhaps 12 hours of fasting, whichever way you're doing it. So it does give my body a chance for the fasting insulin to drop for glucose to drop, et cetera, et cetera. But what now from a cortisol standpoint, you know, because a lot of people ask me, well, I have adrenal issues. I have hypoglycemia. Should I, should I do intermittent fasting? Because fasting is going to then lower my blood sugar even further and make me feel worse. So mm-hmm. per- perhaps you have some insight on that. Really good point. Uh, really good point. And the, the, I'm just trying to figure out how to phrase this. The um, holistic approach is really the only approach here. So if people have cortisol issues and that sort of thing, I really want to back them up and say, okay, let's look at your sleep. What are you doing before bed? Are you doing some breathing? Or have you moved enough today? And movement doesn't necessarily mean going and doing a spin class or, you know, doing some heavy hit training at the gym. Have you had a walk? Have you, are you doing other things to try and calm down the adrenals and get yourself out of fight and flight? Awareness is a huge part of this. And the approach to the adrenals needs to be multifaceted. So I would start with that with all of the people and say, maybe we don't do 16 hours of intermittent fasting Right. Um, at this point. Maybe we just do the 12 hours overnight. You finish dinner by seven and you eat some breakfast at 7.30 the next morning on your way to work, but your, your um, food in the morning is well balanced. It's not high carbohydrate. We try this for right. a little while mm-hmm. and go from there. So even just doing 12 hours and not eating after dinner, so you forget about the 12 hours of fasting, Finishing dinner and then not eating again before bed is a huge part of blood sugar as well. And so many people need a snack at night, Um, mostly from an emotional perspective. It's usually not physical hunger. Yeah, it's definitely not not a blood sugar issue. I mean, part of that is is serotonin. Um, so yeah. you know, eating yeah. carbs at night does raise your serotonin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, we now know. I mean, based on our whole conversation here, that it's going to mess around with your blood sugar at the same time. Um, sure. So yeah. so so again, something we spoke about earlier, and, and I want to get your thoughts on this. What what you know, a lot of research now. Um, looking at the keto diet, I mean, obviously ketogenic diet is huge. It's probably the most um, searched for health topic mm-hmm. these days. And now you've got the carnivore diet. I don't really want to talk too much about the carnivore diet because it's quite radical. Yeah. Um, but but the keto diet, I mean, essentially, you're keeping your carbohydrate count down to 
you know, roughly 5% of your diet. So, so really, I mean, we could stretch that and say you're, you're borderline eating a no carb diet. Um, you know, how, how does this impact blood sugar? You know, um, does, does this, is this something that you do at all or are you for or against, or do you feel it's a bit more nuanced? Um, it, it is more nuanced for sure. Um, I, I certainly, uh, the keto diet has a a tremendous impact on blood sugar from a positive perspective for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, because as you just said, you're lowering the carbohydrates down to, you know, mostly around, most people are looking at 30 grams of net carbs a day um, for a full fledged keto diet. Um, that's not very much. So you're even from your vegetable perspective, you're really cutting down on the non-starchy carbs as well. So the the nuanced area that comes in from the perspective my perspective of do we actually need to be strict with those percentages uh and the actual number of net carbs or can we just um eliminate the big carbohydrates the grains uh the starchy vegetables and too much fruit because again a lot of people eat too much fruit thinking, oh, yeah. oh it's yeah. so fantastic for us so um but can we do it without you know falling over into the, oh my God, I've got to follow this really strict keto uh, protocol. Well, the, the, the dropout rates are so high as well. I mean, most people cannot stay on a keto diet for an extended period of time. Um, you know, I find that, a lot of people can't. I think you're right. I find a lot of people can't. A lot of people have gut issues, which is something that I didn't mention before, but certainly our gut health uh, mm-hmm. is very, um, our, our blood sugar is very impacted by our gut health as well. Um, and a high fat diet for a lot of people may not work, especially if their gallbladder and their liver aren't yeah. working properly. Yeah. So um, a lot of people can feel very terrible on a full on keto diet. It can be incredibly beneficial. I work at the at P3 clinic. We um, uh, work with um, a lot of reversing dementia uh, clients as well. And certainly we want to get them as close to a keto diet as possible from a brain health perspective. Right. Um, right, and, right, right. Um, blood sugar can be a huge part of dementia as well. So, um, but but as you said before, I'm not really falling into the actual dogma of keto. It's sort of what is appropriate for the person who's in front of me, and what can they put into their lifestyle, and how far can we move them before we need to take another approach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, and I think again, it's you know, it's a, it's a sensible approach that's actually doable. You know, because mm-hmm. I I always say, I mean, you know, if you can't follow the program, well, what's the point? You know, exactly. the, no, 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 following the program equals no results equals a complete waste of time for everyone. Um, so, you know, meeting people halfway and and uh, baby steps is sometimes what's needed. Uh, yes, sort so. of. You know, the the one percent changes on a regular basis uh, end up with huge changes by the end of the year or by the end of two years. So. Yeah. What, um, just to sort of move us along here, um, what do you feel, you know, from, from a supplemental standpoint, do you feel, um, you know, just in the way that you practice anyway, do, do, do you feel like, do you rely heavily on supplements or do you feel like supplements are more just sort of window dressing, um, with regards to blood sugar issues? Um, again, uh, food is the first, yeah, <laughs> food, yeah, food yeah. first always, because it has the most impact. Uh, some people will say, well, just tell me what, what supplements to take uh, that'll move my blood sugar. But if you're not addressing the food at the same time, then the minute you stop taking the supplements or you forget to take them this month, then you're not, ha- it's mm. not having any, any effect. Mm. Um, and you're not changing anything at the root level. Having right. said that, there are supplements that I do like. Often vitamin D is very low in people with diabetes and obesity. So um, I want to look at that. Um, I want to look, berberine is a very nice supplement. Yeah, love that it. That can be very helpful for a lot of people. It's great. It, you know, it can be very helpful for heart issues, which, are, which of course are going to go hand in hand with blood sugar issues um, and neuropathy and, and uh, that sort of thing. I do like alpha-lipoic acid uh, from an antioxidant perspective, from a liver perspective. Um, magnesium is uh, yeah, a lot, yeah, something a lot. I use a lot for everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, magnesium is often deficient in, uh, in, in people with blood sugar issues. It really is. And um, it can really help with insulin production. So um, magnesium is something that most of us are, are – insufficient or even deficient in so 
especially living in a Western society, um, it's our anti-stress mineral. So yeah. I do recommend it for so many reasons. It helps with sleep. It helps with stress. It helps with blood sugar. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I don't rely on, on supplements. Yeah. Um, you know, that, then we get back to the functional testing and, and can we do some, after we get people going, can we do some great functional testing and maybe some micronutrient testing to find out what they are actually deficient in as opposed to just insufficient and then go from there to get everything up to an optimal functional functioning uh, right. level that can be very beneficial. I don't necessarily start there again from an adherence perspective if somebody's spending hundreds of dollars a month on supplements, they may not be able to do that for very long. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I mean, you know, again, for those of you listening to this, uh, I'll I'll stress Jill's point here, you know, diet is key. Uh, if, if you're, if you're not for blood sugar, especially if you're not following the right diet and you're not taking into account what we've just spoken about, um, relying on supplements is just not going to get you anywhere. Um, I've experienced that firsthand, um, for over many, many years, and uh, conversely, uh, oftentimes, if you actually work with the diets, you'll find that you don't really need as many supplements at all um, which, mm-hmm. Which, mm-hmm. for these types of situations. Yeah, really, really cool. So um, one, one thing, just to bring us into the close here, um, I think for a lot of people, they, they, you know, if you're a practitioner listening to this, perhaps you already know this, but if you are someone who has diabetes or someone who knows someone with diabetes, you know, there's a lot of complications with diabetes, right? You know, you've brought up a few times um, neuropathy, eyesight issues, Mm -hmm. uh, cardiovascular disease is probably the number one um, complication, quote unquote, of of diabetes. But um, perhaps you can explain to people, you know, how how does this work? I mean, why, why are people having these complications and what can they do about it? Well, the body, um, has very good mechanisms to try and keep blood sugar within a normal range and all of our blood levels of everything right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so we can't have too much of one of one thing and not enough of another the body really regulates blood levels of all sorts of things in a very tight range because if not outside of that we're sort of we're either unconscious or we're we're dead essentially so um the mechanisms are there and when we have too much blood sugar and when we have too much insulin those can be very irritating to blood vessels uh specifically in our micro vessels right so in oh, the- are you talking about inflammation is that like I'm talking a- about inflammation but okay. i'm also talking about um things called that that uh, we spoke about before we started. So sorry, I sort of jumped in too no, far. That's okay. here. No, 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 that's the, great. Um, um, advanced glycation end products, ages, A-G-E-S. Mm-hmm. So, um, and this is where sugar becomes permanently bonded to a protein. Okay. And, and that, um, and that it causes um, a lot of damage within our blood vessels and other things in the body. So that can specifically in the microvessels. So in our kidneys, in our feet, in our hands, we end up with neuropathy, nephropathy in our eyes, in the blood vessels in our eyes, we end up with retinopathy too. So mm. when sugar becomes bonded to proteins in the body, it can do a lot of damage in a lot mm. of areas. And this is why we end up with those other things. Right. And of course, it's going to differ from person to person, right? I mean, some- of course. Some diabetics are going to have heart disease. Others will have retinopathy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But my understanding as well, just to follow on your point, um, you know, with AGEs, we see a lot of um, inflammatory, uh, you know, cytokines and products and molecules that are being produced as well, right? And um, causing a lot of oxidation in the body. So um, do you think it's beneficial for people to then take antioxidants? You know, you mentioned alpha lipoic earlier as an antioxidant. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that generally speaking, antioxidants are useful for people with diabetes? I think they can be. I think, um, uh, as I said, that is my favorite one to use, the alpha lipoic acid. Um, uh, We can get a lot of antioxidants from eating a lot of uh, non-starchy vegetables. So, and and all the micronutrients that go in there that are beyond the antioxidants. So all the phytonutrients, um, the flavonoids and, and all of the polyphenols and all of those sorts of things work synergistically with the, the minerals and, and um, vitamins in the body. So I think uh, just relying on an antioxidant supplement is probably not going to be enough. Right, right, right. Well, it makes total sense. Um, makes total sense. So Jill, um, you know, that was a, a really uh, enlightening discussion, I think, for our listeners out there. 
Um, hopefully you learned something today, especially again, if you or someone you know has diabetes, I think you, you know, hopefully you got a lot of value from this episode. Um, any final words, anything that we perhaps haven't touched on, Jill, that you would like to bring up? Um, just again, from the perspective, a holistic approach to blood sugar management, I find is one of the best ways to have lasting beneficial change in moving, moving the blood sugar. Uh, we didn't talk anything about genetics here and genomics. Uh, I know which is one of your favorite topics too, Brett. Um, certainly that enters into it too, but even without knowing any of that stuff, what I'd like people to understand is that they can change their blood sugar starting right now. And it is an important thing to think about um, and to analyze within yourself and maybe work with your healthcare practitioners and, and, and have them evaluate it with you. And as a, if you are a practitioner, don't forget that blood sugar is foundational. And just because somebody doesn't have full on diabetes um, doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it can change everybody's health um, in a very positive way when we really pay attention to it. Yeah, 100% agreed. And um, I think uh, a, a great closing statement. So um, before I let you go, Jill, where can people find out a little bit more about what you do, um, social media, website, anything like that? And obviously, I will uh, put those in the show notes. Great. Thanks, Brett. Uh, yes, my website is jillhillhouse.com. And um, I'm on uh, Instagram at Jill Hillhouse. So it's very easy. It's just my name. Awesome. Awesome. (laughs) All right. And so, yeah, I'm I'm sure people will be able to find out more about your work and um, the clinic that you work in, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, absolutely. And there is contact, uh, reach out, uh, contact information available and ability to reach out on my website. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much for stopping by today, Jill. Uh, great discussion on blood sugar, diabetes, and you know, congratulations on your success with the book. Um, I'm sure it's changing many people's lives. Thanks so much, Brett. I loved being here. All right. Awesome. And for those of you uh, listening out there, as always, if you enjoyed today's episode, uh, please consider sharing this with your friends, your family, your community, and uh, of course, subscribing and leaving us a review. Um, So I'm going to leave it at that and uh, we'll catch up with you next episode. Uh, You have yourself a beautiful day wherever you are. (laughs) 